All right. Let us begin with carbon. Because carbon is ubiquitous, it's everywhere, and it's kind of the stage upon which all the other elements play out their roles. So starting here makes a lot of sense from that perspective. I also want to remind us to have an open mind. We're going to be going through a lot of the numbers and we're going to be putting things together from different branches of science that are going to elucidate the actual behaviors of our world. And as such, it will open up new ways of thinking about our world that are not, you know, in the mainstream media and not (laughs) uh, being talked about anywhere else. And it's a shame because this is how our world actually works. So let's just let's just start it on it. Let's just start it on it because carbon is I mean, it's the hottest topic right now, right? Everyone's worried about carbon. Everyone's worried about CO2 levels in the air. They're worried about uh, the the, the carbon levels and the pH of the ocean. All these things are really important, but we need to take them in context so that we can respond appropriately. Because if we are focused on the wrong thing, we'll miss the opportunity to do the right thing. And it will be obvious what the right thing is when we look at it. (laughs) So carbon, C. Carbon, you know, it's so fundamental. It's a key component of all organic compounds, which means it's the key component of all life from animals to plants. And it's essentially the structure. It's the backbone for all living things. It's the structure of the soil, but it's also the structure of plants and our own bodies. It's... It's really critical also to photosynthesis, which is the engine for our world. When oxygen first started to be pumped out by microbes and then later plants, it was this process of complete chaos. I mean, adding oxygen to the atmosphere had not been done before, you know what I mean, large quantities, and it oxidized all these anaerobes and it became the aerobic era. Right, we live. We are living, and when we're living products of the aerobic era, of photos, the photosynthetic era of Earth, and so we are breathing oxygen thanks to plants, and because of this legacy of photosynthesizers, and that fuel that they began with, that they started with, was CO two, and 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 yes, sunlight vital. Yes, being able to have moisture, you know, water, vital. But photosynthesis also takes other other inputs, other fuel sources like sulfur and whatnot. And it's it's important to recognize that. So this energy getting from from heat, from light, from from the sun, this has always been part of nature. And the photosynthesis is the is what dominates and defines the world that we live in. And that's why it's so dangerous that we're messing with it. And we're overlooking it as a solution to our current problems. And so it's really critically important to understand its nature so we can appropriately respond to the world's current misunderstanding of what the carbon cycle is. So 
the carbohydrates, the sugars that are being released in the exudates from plants, those are also from from CO2. Those, those are also carbon. So it's feeding the microbes. It is the soil organic matter. It is the humic compounds and substances of the soil. It's the black color between in your fingers, between the ridges of your fingerprints. All these things are carbon. And CO2, you know, it's released when you know fossil fuels are burned. We, we all know this. But it's also when all animals exhale micro to macro. It's also what fungi exhales. And fungi is, is, is great and ubiquitous. And we'll get into that in a second. But we just have to understand that it's everywhere. It's taking so many different roles. So we need to have a complex relationship and understanding of it. We can't demonize it. It is essential to all life. And it's the cycling of it and the appropriate sequestration of it that is, is critical to get across. Because, you know, for, for, for many of us, it may come as a surprise that farmers um, and greenhouse growers are supplementing with CO2. So they're buying CO2 and then they're adding it. They're creating CO2 generators inside their greenhouses. Now, if we think about this, uh, this would make sense because CO2 is that fuel, right, for the reaction. So in areas that are just plants, like Iowa and Nebraska, like cornfields forever, cheek and jowl, um, those areas are completely stacked with plants. And they're not compost country folk. They're corn folk. So they're not going to be composting to compensate. Um, now maybe the, the, the word's getting out that they may start doing windrows in the middle of their fields uh, to get that in situ CO2. But for the most part, this is completely new information for people. And so greenhouses can raise their yields 30 to 50% by adding CO2. So now we see why people are confused when people just look to CO2 as a problem without any sophistication as to uh, the context. So farmers, greenhouse growers, all of them are looking to add CO2 to these situations where it's just plants. Because in situ, they're not seeing what, you know, the measurements that they're getting in cities, which is understandable. There's no plants in the cities creating oxygen. So they're actually CO2 rich environments and if you think about it, I mean, they're, 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 unless they're really windy cities, you know, that's what the coastal cities are so great is because they get that regular recharge of ocean air that refreshes them. But the reality is CO2 is heavier than O2, right? And so oxygen released in photosynthesis goes up and CO2 descends and, and can, can get stagnant and can hang around unless it's pushed around by, by, by wind, right? This is why we need to open up and air out rooms at times. The stagnant air literally is CO2 stacking up in that room and driving you to feel cramped, uncomfortable, like you need to breathe a little bit. And so when we understand the functions, when we understand like atomic weight, when we understand how these things work. This is why, you know, smoke from coal 
has particulates that land and the smoke itself can descend onto onto things because it's heavy with carbon. And and and, and speaking of which, you know, coal is a form of carbon, just like wood is, just like burning wood releases CO2, but it's everywhere. It's it's all everywhere. And so it's a primary building block because, you know, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen work together to create all of life. And good soils really need it because it's it's not just the building blocks. It's the reservoir for all energy. And I'm going to keep saying it. We're going to go over it. Um, You know, great credit goes to Dr. Olivia Husson, who organized and has really brought this to many people's attention. And again, he's he's a researcher standing on the shoulders of giants as well. And we're all in this, you know, pursuing the science together and, and continuously being curious and amazed and, and, and sharing, you know, sharing, which is, I think, really incredibly important. Carbon, one of the things that's really interesting about it that Olivier told me is that it can give and accept electrons. So like nitrogen, sulfur and phosphorus, it allows it to have the greatest effect on soil EH, so soil redox potential. And that's part of the reason why it's so buffering, because it, it, it affects the EH directly, right? And, and because of its water holding capacity, because of its ability to expand the capacity, but not change the levels of the pH and EH at the same time, it's like an exponential like open door to, to greatness for plants um, and our soils. So, so I really, I really find it just incredible the value of carbon in our systems as as something we think about because it's habitat, it's food, it's the pH and EH buffer, it's the energy reservoir, it's the sugars our plants are putting out, and it's the structure for all life. And we can generate our own pure organic matter with with compost, right? Um, and we can passively run water through it and get those humic compounds, those humic acids that people are paying so much money for, we can get them as living whole fractions rather than the Leonardite process where they're just shocking to create, shocking with pH, um, low acid, like so acidic, low, low pH to get that humic and fulvic acid separation. Which is, you know, people argue about whether that's really natural, whether we can really measure those things despite them having effect. And I know I include in the book descriptions of them and their effects because people are using them. People are, are, are you know, they do have effect, you know. So I, I don't want to um, ignore things that are working. And, but, but I also want us to understand why they have limitations, so um, just keep that in mind. And then, you know, when we pass the water through these things, they make these carbonic acids. You know, that's a catalyst for soil, for like tons of soil reactions and, you know, breaking down rocks, releasing minerals. But if you've got, you know, carbonates, you know, bicarbonates in your soil, those are going to lock up like limestone. That's going to lock up your nutrients. And so you really need to lean extra heavy, extra hard, right, into that direction. And then regularly maintain 
your soil pH, EH, because if the parent material or your water is hard, that's what you know the bicarbonates, carbonates are gonna do, um, you're going to have to continuously compensate for that continuous effect, right? So this efficacy can, uh, can be limited, like if you're adding fertilizer or amendments of any sort, they can be limited by up to 70%. So they're 70% less effective if you've got hard water or this, this parent material predilection towards being alkaline. All right, so um, let's now look at the cycle before we get into toxicity, deficiency, and what to do. Let's look at the actual cycle because we're gonna see things here together that are gonna open our minds and because it's nature, because it's uh, not opinion, it's going to start conversations. It's going to start questions. And it, sh it certainly did for me. So I'll walk you through where I, what happened when I started doing this. Because the, the carbon calculation game gets a little bit tricky. Okay. And this is why there's so many people who get um, upset, I would say. Because there's, there is uncertainty. There is flex, as I say in the books. So carbon is this ubiquitous, it's you know this electable modality, it's, it's constantly changing its forms and its roles. But let's start with photosynthesis, right? So light, water, CO2 comes in, plants are taking that in this wonderful reaction, that's the formula there, and it's releasing oxygen. But it's also releasing carbohydrates and sugars down into the rhizosphere. Bacteria and fungi are feeding on it. Protozoa and nematodes are feeding on them. All of them together are contributing to soil organic matter, long and short cycle carbon. Decomposition and saprophytes are contributing to that too. And it's this constant generation that is our topsoil out of that decomposition, out of that life, and out of that photosynthetic process. And then notice here we have tillage, undoing what the plants are doing. This is so real. This, this is so important to take in. We're gonna watch this little video here from NASA. This is a simulation. This is not an actual satellite visual. It's important to recognize that. And this simulation shows what's going on from the readings they have. So this is data-based, but it's built to simulate what that data is, is, is showing. Now, if we just look at this, and if we just listen to the announcer, the announcer's not gonna point out what's quite obvious if we just watch it in silence or with me guiding it. When we look at the year, we notice that in spring, things just explode. And then in the fall, the same thing, but what happens every summer? And then, you know, winter's a slow burn, right? So every summer, we have the plants grow. And every summer, the plants grow, the fields grow, all the carbon gets taken up into their bodies and into the soil. And then we come and till and spray. And we release all the carbon again every fall and then we do the same thing every spring when we reset the fields. So 
the the carbon release that we're really seeing that NASA is showing is not our cars in summer on summer vacation. It's not our barbecues. It's not our heaters in the winter. It's really agriculture, tillage, and spraying of desiccants, of Roundup, of things that are killing life that are releasing carbon. So it's a carbon release from the soil, from the plants, because when they desiccate it with Roundup, they're spraying it on there and causing the plants to quickly dry out, to desiccate. And where does that carbon go? Where does that life go? Where does that moisture go? Because into the environment. And, you know, the, 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 the most powerful greenhouse gas is water vapor. So the more water we lose from the landscape in a, in a way that's not reciprocal, like with trees where they're receive, letting it go and it's creating rain and it's coming back down. When the water's gone from the land, you have violent weather, you have climate change, and we've been removing the water from the landscape. We've been removing the soil from the landscape all over the world historically. And that's why we have global desertification, which even a bioregional, you you know, you change the climate of a place if you remove all the trees, you remove the watershed's ability to take in more water and for the soils to grow and build, you create a desert. That's not controversial. We've just done it on a global scale. And so the fix for this is not is not going to be a numeric like we think, okay? This is important um, because the tillage, right? It's the erosion, it's the eutrophication, it's the carbonic acid getting into the oceans and causing the dead zones. The top soil is going in there and doing so much damage causing these dead zones and, 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 and killing all the coastal plants which are the most powerful creators of oxygen and and so we, we've got a huge problem on our hands because we're killing the oceans and the ocean's lungs are the lungs of the world and they're along the coastlines exactly where we have done the most damage the runoff from all of our our lawns all the excess fertilizer all of it all happening right there in real time so the ocean damage needs to be focused and fixed on there in situ. We need to prevent this tillage and this erosion and this carbonic acids from reaching there. That will have the most dramatic effect on the oceans and on oxygen generation on Earth than anything else we can do as a first step because they're 10 times the photosynthesizers that land plants are. So in the ocean, because they're in water, they're in a nutrient bath, they are free to just do everything, go to the ultimate. They grow a meter and a half a day. Kelp's absolutely incredible. 10 times the sequestration of carbon. 10 times of the oxygen release then. So it's just an equation. You can't change photosynthesis, right? That's the equation. It's a formula that is that, that is true. It's a, You can't change it. It's a, a base it's reality, right? It's a basis of our reality that we are living in. So they will release the oxygen we need. They will take down the carbon in huge amounts. And, and, and then look to the land plants. Let's bring back the land plants, bring back the forests, bring back 
the the pastures. Let's go no-till, but no herbicide madness, right? Because that's just desiccating and releasing the carbon, killing the soil life. I, I don't stand with the, 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 the moderate use of herbicides. And I know, you know, Gabe Brown does. I know, you know, Dr. Olivia Husson does. And 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 I, I'm not gonna like go out and, and start a campaign against those guys. I love those guys. Okay. I'm just going to stand where I stand because I'm I'm not gonna use herbicides. And that's that. So it's really important that we we develop management strategies, we work with goats, we work with maybe steam. Um, there's lots of other options that are non toxic that are killing plants just as well. Um, so it's it's really important to, to to I think keep an open mind about what's possible beyond all those harmful chemicals. Now let's go a little bit further into this because the atmospheric carbon CO two is pretty big, Matt. I thought it was a problem. It absolutely is, but the numbers are going to trick us. What do I mean by that? Let's look a little bit closer at this picture at the top left. Combustion, fossil fuel usage in all human activity amount to 7 gigatons of CO2 released annually. That is a lot, right? But remember, there's pollution being released. There's people who dump 25,000 ba- ga- like 55-gallon barrels of DDT off the coast of Santa Barbara, Los Angeles area. And that's going to do way more damage to the environment but listen to this, okay? We gotta put things in context. This CO2 could be plant food, because we know this, right? Okay, right, it could be, but let's look at it closer, because the world is lacking the plants. The ocean plants are dying, that are the, the kings at this. The, the, the forests of the earth are dying, the biggest, oldest trees of the world are all sick, um, because their soils are dying. Um, because Roundup is raining down and it's in the air and it's killing the soil life, breaking up the amino acid production pathway, disrupting it in our bodies as well as in the soil, harming these plants. We, we can save these trees. We can turn this around with, with healthy soil. I've seen it done. I, 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 I've seen it done by multiple people, multiple ways. There are multiple pathways to healing the earth. It's a beautiful thing. But I want us to be responsible and look at the numbers together because when I saw this, it freaked me out and I had to just go over this in my head a few different times and I'm going to talk about what I thought. So, 7 gigatons. Um, and there, you may see things that are a little bit higher, you may see things that are a little bit lower. But this is what annually folks are saying and every year it gets a little bit more, right? Um, we need to dial back fossil fuel usage. We need to think about the future. We need to live ethically, but but also we need to understand these metrics are going to screw us up. Now listen, fungi releases 85 gigatons, that's billion metric tons of CO2 annually. Now, if we've killed the soils of the world for 10,000 years and the primary component of soil is fungi and 30% of all carbon worldwide is sequestered by our buscular mycorrhizal fungi, one kind of fungi, not counting all the other types of fungi. And AMF is responsible up to 50% in the wet, cold temperate climates. We are looking at a world that's missing most of the fungi. 
we are looking at a world that because it had more fungi, had more CO2 release. Oh, but, but why then, my next thought here, your thought too perhaps, why then, Matt, are the ice cores saying this? You're wrong. Now, that was initially my thought. I was like, how can this be right? I started you know, researching Peter McCoy's numbers. I started, and it led me to Oxford. It, he, you know, he does good research, right? And so it led me to the highest educators and sources in the lands of the world. And what I realized was that what I said earlier, CO2 is heavier than O2. So these ice cores at you know the poles of the earth, how high were the canopies of the primeval forests? Hmm. They were hundreds of feet higher than our tallest trees today. Hundreds of feet, meaning we didn't have like an upper story, an overstory, and an understory, sometimes two understories. You know, like we literally had just so many different, multiple canopy, multiple story. We had, uh, we had different layers of canopy dwellers. We had so much life and diversity, it kind of boggles the mind to try to grasp what kind of world that was. But one thing is for sure, as the decomposition happened down at the bottom layer, and as the exhalation from the bottom animals and the animals at different layers within that forest or grassland, because remember CO2 falls, they are going to be the recipients of that CO2 in situ. So those trees, those plants, they are literally absorbing the CO2 before it can leave the environment. So those ice cores are more representative of a generalized um, geologic CO2 level that has to do with volcanic cycles, the ice age cycles, and, and maybe potentially even solar cycles. So it's like context, right? We're gonna we're gonna actually want more CO two to be cycling in the atmosphere, but more efficiently, and it will actually be healthier. It's like this. It's like we have an engine that's flooded with gas, right? You pump the engine, prime the engine too much, now it's flooded with gas. You can't start the engine. That's what's going on, but we shrunk the engine of the world. The engine of the world is photosynthesis. And by shrinking the engine of the world, it appears like we have too much CO2, when in fact, it's, it's beguiling. We instead need to bring back the primeval forest. Instead, we need to bring back the kelp forests of our world. We need to bring back the animals. We need to bring back the canopies. We need to bring back the biology. That's gonna take all that CO2 down into the soil rhizosphere, hand it off to the fungi and bacteria and have it sequestered into the soil matrices so that it will stay there for thousands of years of benefit and promise of a regenerative and more beautiful future. That's the basic behavior of our world. And it's humbling, stunning, and inspiring when we look at it. It, it. it is, at least it's for me, and I really hope it is for you. Because this isn't a story of us being bad. This is a story of us 
being the heroes because you're here. You're learning how to fix this problem and we are going to fix this problem. We are going to bring back the forest, the grasslands, the kelp forest, the coral reefs, and all the biodiversity, micro to macro. We're going to bring it back. And, you know, I, I recently heard that every time there's been one of these great mass extinctions, life has re rebounded in a way that's phenomenal, in a way that defies logical explanation and we're starting to see some potential reasons why we we, we we borrow DNA laterally from things when we're in need um, animals diversify and evolve very quickly and adapt extremely quickly when when, when there's great need I, I think of you know Darwin's birds I mean he was seeing changes like even in in his work in just a few years and this is constantly happening it will constantly happen we will literally see the world regenerate itself if we take these steps if we allow nature to teach us instead of us imposing limiting reductionist metric I mean, we're trying to make co2 into a metric that we can have a carbon economy around it and the reality is, is it's so much more complex. It already has its own economy, in my opinion. And, 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 and we need to participate in that economy and not presuppose that we can dictate an economy around it. Because that's what you know the politicians are positing. And it's foolish. It makes them look ludicrous. When we look at it from this angle, we see how nature is leading and can guide us and not just fix the, the, the CO2 problem, but fix the oxygen problem because it's oxygen that we should be measuring and quietly those who have been measuring it are very concerned. And though they've been measuring it for some time, they've, they, they've not been given a voice. You, you'll notice that it, if you do some research that the oxygen shortage has come up again and again and again, but but no one really wants to deal with it. No one really wants to face it. So I just really feel really strongly about this because it's it's absolutely important for us to really understand the cycles. Soil is the linchpin to life to civilization, to health. If we want a healthy future, to fight environmental collapse, to live regeneratively and ethically, and to experience a life of abundance and freedom, we want healthy and abundant soil everywhere. But that means we need to relearn old ways and learn some new ways to build, cycle, and partner with soil and soil life. We can change the world radically, but it's up to us. We have to make those choices. We have to partner with soil and soil life. It takes our participation and support. Will you join us? Regenerative Soil, the full program, we're going to dive deep 
we're going to be looking commercial, we're going to be looking DIY, we're going to be going garden, we're going to be going farm scale. We're going to cover it all. We want to serve everyone at all levels and we want to create that fluency, micro to macro, so that we can spread the regeneration of our soil, our ecosystems, all our systems all across the world. You can do this. You can regenerate soil because regenerative soil is the linchpin for life. It's the linchpin for all systems, all of our civilization. Everything is running on this. Everything is based on this. Everything is relying upon this. Check out the link down below. Sign up and and join us in Regenerative Soil, the full online course. You're not going to want to miss it. I'm Matt Powers. Grow abundantly, learn daily, and live regeneratively.